Welcome to X Church. It's such an honor to be with you, have you connecting with us, and to everyone who's attending on our Global X fam or watching this online YouTube or wherever at any time. Uh, it's just an honor for you to connect with us and us to be able to connect with you. And if you are new, we kicked off a series last week called Origins where we're kind of wrestling with some really hard questions that a lot of people maybe deal with, maybe some of you are dealing with, that really is a struggle sometimes between faith and science. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but you can feel trapped between the two. You know, if you're a person of faith and you're sometimes looked upon as somebody who's not intelligent because you're believing some mythological something or other, or if you're a person of science, then sometimes it's like, well, you just don't know what it's like to have faith. And, and so what I decided to do was kind of just wrestle with what it means to intersect in the middle. Because I believe that there's a space for us to operate in intelligence and with science and evidence, but also to be a person of faith. Now, if you're someone who does not believe in God, you do not believe in Jesus, you'd say you're an atheist, agnostic, whatever, I'm so excited that you're here in the room watching this online, connecting with us, because I just feel like this is a conversation that we need to have. It's something we should talk about. And so to help you in this conversation, if you were here last week, we had these Origins um, field guides to kind of help you. Now, hopefully you've got your field guide and you brought it back with, because it's going to help you just to kind of take notes through it. If you weren't here last week and you missed it, but you say, I would like a copy. If you want to slip your hand up, if you're in the room, we got ushers all over the room. They will get you one, okay? So if you didn't get one, grab one. It's just a way for you to take notes, to engage in the conversation, because I'm going to present some things that might create as many questions as I hope to answer, okay? And so, again, so if you need a field guide, stick your hand up. If you're watching this online, uh, we'll throw the link in the, in the chat, and you can download it, or you can just get whatever you want to take notes, okay? Also, here's what I know is that you might end up with more questions, when we wrestle with some really, really hard questions, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in these areas, okay? You might go, your answer is not sufficient. I, I hear you. Listen, let me just say this, that um, if it creates more questions, I'm okay with that. Here's what you can do, and that is that you can engage with other questions and add them by texting ORIGINS to 94000, okay? So text ORIGINS to 94000. If you have additional questions, submit them. And uh, if I get some really good questions, maybe I'll answer them in the rest of the series. If I get any real bad questions, well, okay, well, we'll just throw those out. And you don't have to worry about it. And you won't know if it's good or bad, but ask it anyways, okay? So again, if you need a, a, a guide, go ahead and stick your hand up. But um, we'd love for you to engage in this conversation. Now, last week, we kicked it off by dealing with probably the most fundamental Probably the deepest conversation that we could have, and that is this question of God. Where did God come from? Theology, this basic question. How do we know that God exists? And one of the things we talked about is how science can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God. But what it can do is that it can help us by seeing and discovering the clues that might lead us to the place where we might decide by faith to believe in a God. Okay, and so if you were a part of that conversation, great. You're going to need that to help you this week. If you miss a week, I'm just going to tell you, it's like, you know, when you go to school and you miss a week of school and you're in trouble, okay, because you just, you don't know what assignments, and you know, if you miss a week, you better watch it before you show up because it's, it's going to be really important, all right? So if you have your, um, your textbooks ready, if you have your pencil, number two pencil, your paper, your field guide. We're going to dive into today's question. It is a, one of the biggest cosmological questions facing humanity. It's a question of cosmology, and that is this. Where did the universe come from? I know that that is a question that many of you spend sleepless nights lying in your bed wondering. Where did the universe come from? How did all this get here? It's a great question. Now, last week we touched on it very briefly, and uh, I, I talked about how Aristotle, who kind of the famed Greek philosopher, who kind of really pitched this idea. He said, the very existence of a universe demands an explanation. Okay, when something exists, we go, what? how did it get here? This is the way our minds work. These are the things that we think about. Okay, now, last week, just to kind of reflect, and we're going to go back to this real quick. Uh, I touched on a basic argument. It's kind of an argument of logic. 
that was developed in the 8th century called Kalam's Cosmological Argument, okay? And it's basically three simple statements, and this is a syllogism, which is a form of logic, and let's just revisit it real quick before we jump in. It says this, whatever begins to exist must have a cause. I think we understand that. We live in a cause and effect world. Like, I'm looking at you. You began to exist. There was a time when you did not exist, and then you began to exist. Something caused that. We won't even talk about that until next week. All right. The next statement, the universe began to exist. There's a universe. We see it. We're in it. Therefore, the universe must have had a cause of its existence. A basic form of logic, okay? There's a premise A and B are true. Then premise C has to be true. Now, the reason why this is kind of an old argument and some would say they've thrown it out is because what is often argued is this one. The universe began to exist. How do we know that? Are you sure that the universe began to exist? What if the universe did not have a beginning? What if the universe was here? So how do, we don't know that that is true, okay? So this is, again, a basic argument. It doesn't really do a lot for us, but it just kind of helps us get started. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this question, how did the universe come about? And there's two basic frameworks of our view of how we could see this. Two kind of, I'm just going to put this in basic categories, okay? In fact, I got a little tool with me uh, today. So kind of imagine your class and the teacher's got a dry erase board, so he's going to write on it. It might help you with notes, okay? So let's wrestle with this question, big question about the universe, okay? Right? Where did the universe come from? It's a big question. Two basic viewpoints, all right? I want you as I write this, I want you to think about which one you might be, okay? There is what I'll call a theist viewpoint. A theist is somebody who believes in a what? God, okay? Or you can come on the other end of the spectrum, and there would be an atheistic viewpoint. An atheist is someone who does not believe in God. A, without God, okay? So there's two basic viewpoints that we could view life, everything, through the lens of there being a God or their lens of there being no God. In other words, all we have is this material world. Okay, these are the two basic viewpoints. Let's talk first about the theist viewpoint, okay, of the universe. Now, if you are someone who says, I believe in God, and we'll say specifically, because of our context, Christian, okay, a Christian theistic viewpoint, now, there's some similarities between this and, and say, a Jewish or, or uh, Islamic uh, view. But, but let's, just, let's just say, if you're a Christian, why do you believe there is a God? Where do you get that source from? Out loud. Where do you get the source from? The Bible. That's what a, theist, a Christian theist would say. Well, I believe there's a God. Maybe they would say primarily because the Bible says that there is a God, Right? In fact, let's take a look at what the Bible, your Bible, starts out. This is your, you know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Most of us probably know this. It says, in the beginning, God. It's really important to understand this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the Christian theists would say, there was a beginning. There was a time where there wasn't time, and then there was time. And what existed before that time began was God, okay? So here's a basic premise of a theist would say this, okay? They would say, I believe that God is eternal, that God caused the universe to begin. If that's the case, then you would believe in an infinite God, okay? Infinite in other words, a God that exists outside of time and space, that there was the God that caused the universe and, and basically says that the universe had a beginning. We'll go back to the argument. There's a beginning, and the, begin, the universe began. That's what theists would say. It had a beginning, right? Now, if, if maybe you're an atheist, maybe this has kind of been your belief. You've said, well, if you say that God exists and you can't prove God exists, we said science can't prove, can't disprove it, that it's faith to believe in God. Okay, I get that, I get that. If you say that God exists forever, well, why do I have to say that God exists forever? You can't prove it. So what an atheist would say, and this is what many have said for a long time, is you believe in an infinite God. What if I believe, 
instead in an infinite universe. All right? An infinite universe. So you say that God exists and he's infinite. Well, who's to say that the universe isn't infinite? Who's to say that matter hasn't always existed? You say that it got started because of your Bible. I don't believe that, that God started it. Well, you need faith. I need faith. Well, I'm just going to say the universe always existed. Now, for atheists for a long time, this is the smoking gun argument. We don't even need to talk about this anymore because it doesn't matter. Okay? Now, this is kind of the basic argument that has been made to viewpoints of the universe. Now, let let me just, I want to make sure that for our conversation today that we all understand what, what I mean when I say uh, finite or infinite, okay? Um, just because I was sharing this with one of the staff members and where I was going, and at one point he looked at me all glossy-eyed and was like, huh? I don't, I was like, do you not understand infinite? Well, uh, what? You know, so I said, okay, fine. Let's just go with a little definition. Let me throw up a definition of finite, right? Finite means having bounds or limits, not infinite. It's measurable. So if you own a piece of property, you were given dimensions of how many feet. Remember this, you can measure it. It's something you measure. Time, however many hours a day, however much time we're here, that is something that you can measure, okay? In other words, it has to have a beginning, may or may not have an end, but it has to be measurable some way. It doesn't go on forever. Remember when you were in school and you had to take class in math and they were talking about a plane and they were like, not, not an airplane, but a plane, and, you know, and they're like, oh, well, this, this little line goes on forever. And you're like, what do you mean? I, you know? Well, let me explain infinite. Okay, infinite would mean this unlimited or unmeasurable in extent of space, duration of time, etc. So infinite means eternal. Infinite means forever. So here's where it gets really hard. I'm gonna be honest. It gets hard for our finite. Why is our minds finite? Because we had a beginning. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around infinite. Let me just say that, right? Because if somebody talks about, you know, this is millions and millions, this is billions and billions, trillions of years, and, you're, you know, it goes on for infinity. And, and you know, a lot of times we'll say, that's, that's like a really long time. And I would say, no, it's actually not. It's no time, okay? It, needs, it exists outside of time. Again, construct that's kind of confusing, but it's important when we talk about the universe. Why? Because the universe itself has specific properties, there are certain properties that we just take for granted in life that we could say come from the universe. For example, time. Time. We have time because we have a universe. This is what a theist would say that began. Something has started. Time is one. Space. Okay? These are matter. Things that we have. Motion. Things that we have, these are properties of our universe. So for whatever reason, the reason why we have time and we have space, matter, motion, gravity, all these things, is because we have a universe. And that universe lets us know that these things are real, okay? So here's the thing. When it comes to understanding the universe, these basic forms of how do we understand this? Well, where do these come from, these ideas? Well, you could trace back to the scientific revolution. So we talked a little bit about that last week, but... There was a a famous scientist near the beginning or so of the scientific revolution. His name was Isaac, Isaac Newton. You ever heard of him? Isaac Newton, right? When we all think of Isaac Newton, we always think of an apple for whatever reason, right? Because of his experiments with gravity. And, you know, an apple fell and it's kind of the story goes. And all of a sudden, oh, he just, uh, gravity. Now, now, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, uh, kind of well known for giving us laws of motion. Now, he didn't create this. But he kind of defined them for us, and often in mathematical terms, okay? He gave us the laws of gravity. Again, Isaac Newton didn't come up with gravity, okay? That's part of the universe. Isaac Newton defined it, gave mathematical equations for, uh, for gravity and basically the laws of attraction and that the mass of bodies, and there's a, 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 a formula for how they attract. So here's the thing. As he developed these laws of attraction and gravity, what we need to know is that his theories actually created some big challenges for himself, okay? In other words, the way his laws of gravity were created and what he put in his formula, some were adapted later. But here's what he, basically, if you applied his law of gravity to the universe, here's what happened. 
all of the bodies in the heavens, stars, planets, everything, should, here's what according to his, should suck into each other and implode. So that was a problem. Just a little bit of a problem for Newton. And so Isaac Newton was somebody who really kind of advanced, he advanced this idea. He said, wait a minute, but if there's an infinite universe with an infinite amount of stars distributed equally around the infinite universe, that everything could balance each other out and that could explain how we just stay here and the sun stays there and we just perfect. That could explain, again, there was limited understanding, but this was still, this was brilliant. This was ahead of his time, okay? Now, he was such, such a well-respected scientist that every other scientist just jumped on. And it was like, okay, infinite, infinite universe. By the way, this helps if you're an atheist. I don't need your God, your first cause. I just have an infinite universe. Now, the, there were some challenges that kind of rose from that. There was a, a German astronomer that in the 1800s, his name, as you can put it up, it was Heinrich Olbers. Heinrich Wilhelm Olbers. I'm trying to say it in my best German accent I can. But Heinrich Olbers was a German astronomer that proposed a challenge to what Newton had said of an infinite universe with an infinite number of stars and what became Olbers' paradox. This was in 1820. And here's what he basically said. He said, if there is an infinite universe with an infinite number of stars all across this infinite universe, then how do we explain the dark night sky? That's an interesting question. Now, this is where it gets a little bit challenging, but let me give you an illustration to explain what his challenge was. Um, when my oldest daughter, Lauren, was probably like three or so years old, we were moving her from like one bed or this crib mattress into a big girl bed and wanted her to stay in her bed. Parents, you all know that challenge. And so I, I went to the store and I bought these little glowing, glow-in-the-dark stars. Maybe some of you parents had that. And I went home and I peeled off the back and I stuck them to the ceiling, just in all different things. And I even kind of made some of the constellations, not that it mattered, but I just did anyways. And, and so I, I scattered some of these stars on her ceiling and they get charged when the lights are on and then you turn them off, the lights off and everything goes dark except for the stars. And so we turn them off at night and look at the stars and lay in bed with her. She loved it. And oh, look at the stars. It's beautiful. Now, here's what Olber said. If we have an infinite number of stars, then basically it would be like if I went to all of the stores in the entire galaxy, okay, we'll stay with our planet for now, and I bought every single glow-in-the-dark star I could, Let's say I had a million glow-in-the-dark stars, some really small because they're really far away, some really big because they're really up close, right? And I came home and I peeled off the backs of them and I stuck them all over her ceiling. What would happen when I flipped the lights off? I would have nothing but glowing stars looking down at me. No black sky, just stars. Because why? Because there's an infinite number of them. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of a little confusing, but it's infinite. So this was a challenge. All of a sudden, scientists are challenged by other scientists who come up. This is what we do. This is what we do in our sciences. It wasn't until the mid-1800s that a poet, very famous American poet, named Edgar Allan Poe, someone maybe you're familiar with, some of his writings, The Raven, and okay. Edgar Allan Poe, he was not a scientist. He was a poet. But he actually proposed a solution to Olbers' paradox. He came up with one. It was, you know, he said, what if, what if, could it be that the reason why we have a dark night sky, if we have an infinite number, is because some of the stars in this great big vast universe, the light from these stars have not reached us yet. It takes time, light travels through space. Maybe they haven't reached us yet. Maybe that's why we have dark night sky around all these stars that we can see. And he said, oh, wait a minute. And if the light hasn't reached us yet, then maybe it hasn't reached us because it hasn't been enough time. And if there hasn't been enough time for the light from these really far distant stars to reach us, then that would mean that the universe is not as old as we think it is. In other words, it can't be infinite. He's a poet. What does he know? Poets don't know anything. Scientists just ignored 
Edgar Allan Poe for a very long time. They did. Now, at this time, again, in the mid-1800s, this is what, well, let me tell you what significant scientific studies were going on, is there was kind of starting to be an explosion of studying light, okay? The study of light, it's called spectroscopy, began to just explode in our sciences. And, oh, by the way, this was a huge thing because we saw incredible advancements in astronomy, huge advancements in the technology for astronomy. All of a sudden, telescopes are getting better and better, and we're getting microscopes, and we're starting to be able to see a little bit further than we could see in the naked eye. And then x-ray technology in the late 1800s was discovered, right? Have you ever had an x-ray? X-ray technology. And so the study of light was starting to change science. Now, to go back into class, and maybe this was in your middle school or grade school, um, some of you will know that what you see when you see light, white light, is not just simply light. Some, some of you remember a teacher might have done this experiment where they dim the lights and maybe someone shined a flashlight and they got out this prism, this little triangular shaped glass or something, and they held it and they shot light into it. And the moment they shot light into it, what came out the other side? Does anybody know? What did you see? You saw a, you saw a rainbow. Stick it up. This, this is what happens when you bend light. When light refracts. Now, we go, why does this happen? This is kind of important. Okay, well, actually, it was Sir Isaac Newton actually did um, test his own observations of this. You can kind of build your own, like little slits in a box, and you can actually bend the light. You can do that on your own. And what this is, this, this is called a spectrum. Now, Isaac Newton was the one that coined this term, okay? This is called a spectrum. Why is it? I don't know if any of you remember. I know it was a long time since science class, and you're like, I have forgotten all of that, but... The reason why is because some of the things we learned in the 1800s about light, we learned that light being energy travels in both particles and in waveform. Waves, wavelengths, just like audio. By the way, if you don't know the sound waves, you ever heard of sound waves? Sound waves, audio travels in waves and really low notes travel in really long waves and really high notes travel in really short waves. Okay, this is, okay, you following me? Class, are you with me? Okay. Light's the same thing. It travels in waves. And depending on the source of the light will determine the spectrum that you have. Every light source is different. So when white light, that we think is white, light from the sun, light from the moon, light from whatever, when it hits something that bends it because they're at different wavelengths, imagine going around a corner and a really long wave takes a long time to go around a corner and a short wave takes a short path around the corner, all of a sudden they split and they form this spectrum. So why, why does all this matter? Why does all this matter? Because we were learning about light. We began to use the tool of light and something called a spectroscope to actually be able to look at a source and determine what it's made of. If you ever wonder, how do we know that the sun is mostly hydrogen and helium? That's the majority of it. It's because a spectroscope will actually show you every single source of light has a unique wavelength pattern that actually shows you what it is. It's fascinating, fascinating. Okay. I know some of you are like, this is not fascinating. I, did, I don't like science. Okay. You were an English major. And can we go back to Poe? Okay. But just hang with me. Hang with me. Why all this matters? Because we get into the 1900s. And there is a um, young astronomer, American astronomer, whose name is Edwin Hubble. Probably you've heard of Edwin Hubble. You know, we all think of the Hubble telescope. But Edwin Hubble was an astronomer who was doing a lot of experiments in the early 1900s. And he discovered, with all of this knowledge of light we had been learning, using a spectroscope and a telescope, he discovered something fascinating. In fact, I want to say, the most significant cosmological discovery in our lifetime, okay? In 1929, he's doing experiments with light and a spectroscope and a telescope, and he's observing what is emitting from these distant stars, and then eventually we learn we're galaxies, not just stars. And one of the things he discovered was something they, they were using at that time called spectral lines, 
Again, I'm just going to go over this real fast. But spectral lines are anything that emits off light. It would form these, these lines. And there would be in these lines, it would determine, the spectral lines would tell you how fast something was moving. Here's what he discovered, just to kind of like make this real simple for everyone. The stuff that was further away, the red lines were different than the stuff that was closer. And here's what he discovered. He discovered something that became known as red shift. It says part of the light in the wave. Red shift, which is he discovered a connection between everything in the universe that is moving. He discovered that it's actually moving and the stuff furthest away, the galaxies furthest away, are moving faster away from us than the stuff that's closer. He discovered all this with these spectral lines called red shift. Now, this was a huge, huge discovery for Edwin Hubble. What he basically determined, this was what he kind of, his science, because of red shift, is that everything in the universe is expanding. So he discovered. He said the stars and distant galaxies they're all moving away from us. And the further away it is, the faster it's going. It's almost like it's picked up speed as it's going. Okay, this is what he discovered. Now, what's interesting is it's taken us thousands and thousands of years and advancements in technology to figure out what the old prophet Jeremiah said in the Old Testament. I love this. Jeremiah 51 verse 15 says, He being God made the earth by his power, he founded the world by his wisdom, and he did what to the heavens? He, he, oh, that's interesting. He stretched out the heavens by his understanding. It's like God somehow went, and, it, and the universe is still stretching. Today, scientists all will agree and say that the universe is expanding away from us. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Thankfully, uh, people like Isaac Newton, who gave us the laws of motion, the first law of motion, an object at rest stays at rest. Remember, you remember this? But an object in motion will stay in motion unless another force is exerted against it. So what does that mean? That means if the universe is expanding away from us, that must mean that at some point in the past, it was... Do I need to do that little experiment for you again? What? If the universe is traveling and expanding away from us in all directions, at some point in the past, it had to. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's what you clap about. Great. This idea that everything that's out there must have come from a small little point is something today that is often referred to as cosmological singularity. I don't know if you ever heard of singularity before, the singularity. It's this idea that everything we see in this universe had to come from a really, really, really single point. Now, this is a fascinating discovery. I mean, if you're in the world of science, you should be like, oh my goodness, right? Every new breakthrough, that's what you get excited for if you're in science. Well, not everybody felt that way. In fact, at this time, um, Albert Einstein, who, again, probably I will say maybe the most brilliant uh, man that we've known in probably, I don't know, it could be hundreds if not thousands of years when it comes to intelligence off the charts, okay? He's the one that gave us the theory of special relativity back in 1905 and general relativity in 1915. Okay, these were, these were theories that were helping us discover all of this. Okay, he, he was told about this in the 30s. Now some of you go, why didn't he know right away? Because there was no internet, okay? Like, it took a long time for this, these kind of discoveries to make their way around. In fact, the person who told him was a British astrophysicist named Arthur Eddington. Some would regard him as almost just as brilliant as Einstein. And so Arthur Eddington tells Einstein about this in the 30s. Hey, they discovered this red shift, and it means that the, everything in the heavens are like moving away from us, and so everything must have come from a single point. You know what Einstein's response was? He refused to believe it. No way. Not possible. So Einstein's initial response was. And, and, and this Arthur Eddington, who's an atheist, 
Okay, an astrophysicist, scientist. I, I want you to hear what he said about this discovery, about redshift. Listen to what he said. He said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order is repugnant to me. I don't like that at all. He said, I should like to find a genuine loophole. I would love to find a way around this. Everybody goes on to say, I simply do not believe the present order of things started off with a bang. The expanding universe is preposterous. It leaves me cold. Now, he wasn't the only one that felt this way. There were many scientists that felt this way as this discovery came to light. Uh, another famous um, scientist at the time was a guy named Fred Hoyle. And I'll tell you why he was, became famous in just a moment. Now, Fred Hoyle, okay, he was a scientist, cosmologist. Okay, he was somebody that was a complete atheist. There is no God. He was someone who subscribed to Newton's theory of a steady state universe. In other words, we have a static universe. It's just there and it's infinite. Even to his dying breath. That's even where most scientists were like, I'm not sure anymore. He was like, no, I believe this. He was doing a radio interview in 1949 with BBC. And on this radio interview, they're asking him about this find, this discovery. And he kind of talks about it, mocking it. This is Fred Hoyle. He mocks this in this interview. Almost like, are we to believe that the universe started and he threw out this term? With a big bang? That's what Fred Hoyle said on a radio interview. Mocking it. He hated this idea. It's really funny because he's the guy who coined the term Big Bang in this moment. And he hated the fact that everybody latched on to his phrase because he did not believe the Big Bang happened. Now what's interesting is that when it comes to the universe... And this idea that everything just, the reaction of the scientific and the faith community was very interesting. Now, some of you are old enough to really remember this conversation in our culture. The scientific community's reaction to redshift, the idea of a big bang and a start of the universe because of its theological implications. You know what the scientific community kind of as a whole did? No way. Uh-uh. We don't believe it. I don't believe it. I refuse to accept it. Which is funny to me, because if you were here last week, I talked about when this was on the other hand. And I talked about Copernicus and Galileo when they were showing their scientific evidence for a helocentric world or universe where the sun was at the center and not the earth. What did the faith community do? Nope, I don't believe it. Your science is of the devil. No way, we will not. You, you, are, you are heresy, you're, you're a heretic if you believe that because we know what is true. We're gonna hold on to what we believe. It was their interpretation of scriptures. Now what's funny is, Hundreds of years later, scientific evidence is exploding about a redshift and this idea of a, a singularity and all this. And the scientific community is like, uh-uh, I don't want to because I want to hold to what I believe is true. Now, it wasn't just the scientific community. It was also the faith community. I know this because I was part of it. I grew up in a Christian home and went to a Christian school for most of my younger years. And I remember when conversations of the Big Bang were happening. I don't know if any of you were in, in the, remember this. But guess what the faith community did when they were all talking about Big Bang and singularity? The faith community said, no, 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 no. There's, there you go again, all you scientists coming up with all these theories to prove that we, are, we know what is true. We hold on to that. It's from our Bibles. It's funny, because that was the reaction, both scientific and faith community. Now, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've grown up, and I've started to think a little bit for myself, I, I realize, what was wrong with the faith community at that time? What, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the Genesis 1 account, real brief, right? Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We heard that already. 
Verse two says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So what do we know? We know that in the beginning, God says God created everything, but it was dark. It was formless. Now there's a lot of different theories about this and you're gonna have to come back next week because I'm gonna talk a little bit about these different theories, a little bit. We're gonna just get into it briefly. It says the earth was formless and void. In other words, that, that, that term literally means without shape. It can mean with a, a disreality, an unreality, chaos. Okay, we don't really understand what it means. There's a lot of theories, okay? But this is what, what Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says. And then many of you know verse 3. Verse 3 says, and God said, let there be. Come on, say it out loud. And God said, let there be. And there was light. We, we, love, we love this uh, this passage is so powerful. God spoke. In a moment, there was light that just erupted in our universe. Like there was none. And in the moment God spoke, it was just, boom. There's light everywhere. It's so funny to me that the scientific community discovers clues of a bang, an explosive beginning to our universe, cosmic flash. And the Bible says that there was a beginning when God spoke. See, the reason why we don't, we don't really register with this is because of maybe our understanding of light. When I say light, I don't know if you ever thought about this. It says, and God said, let there be light. Can I ask you a question? What was that? The sun? Well, technically, if you follow Genesis 1, you realize that God didn't make the sun or the moon until day four. So what was that? That's a great question, isn't it? It's a real good question. See, if you understand light and what light really is, it actually begins to open up your understanding a little bit better. Light is really maybe a best way of saying it. It's energy in motion. All matter puts off light. I am putting off light right now. You can't see the light with your natural eyes, but I am. Anytime there's matter begins to move and there's chemical reactions and there's things, energy is released and light comes forth. Now, the reason why is because with your and my naked eye, we can only see a really small amount of light. By the way, if you were to turn off all the lights and put on some thermal night vision goggles, like, okay, remember the movie Predator? Now, now I'm talking your language, right? Now it's like, oh, Predator, yes, Pastor. Now, thank God. Predator, when they, the goggles and you can see the things moving in the dark, right? And the, the, the more it moves, the, the colors change, right? It's because we're putting off light, you just can't see it. And so one of the things we discovered about light in the 1800s, uh, James Clerk Maxwell was somebody that helped us understand about electromagnetism or what we sometimes call the electromagnetic spectrum. Go back with, in fact, let me, let me put up a little graphic. Okay, I just want to show you this. This itty bitty part right here, where you see the little rainbow? That is all that we can see of light. Okay? These are the waves and the frequency that your eye and my eye can detect. The same way, by the way, that there are sound waves that your ears can't detect. You know why they have those dog whistles and you blow a dog whistle and dog goes nuts, but you don't hear anything? It's because it's a different frequency than your ear can pick up. The same is true with light, okay? So these are like, there's other waves of light that we can't see. There's infrared, there's microwaves. You have a microwave, yeah? Put food in there and you push a button and it's hot. I don't know how it works because I don't see any light rays shooting into it. It's because light is really just radiation, it's electromagnetic radiation. It's just radiation. It's just this is the part you can see. You can't see microwaves, but it, we know it works. It's there. It's heating it up. There's radio waves. You turn your radio dial, and all of a sudden it picks up frequencies. You hear things. It's nothing that you can see with your eyes, but it is something that exists out there. Then you have ultraviolet rays. That's what everybody's freaking out about. And you got to put the sunscreen on. I can't see it, but it could burn me. It could cancer, right? And you have x-rays. If you've ever gotten an x-ray, they take a picture. There's no light, 
that I can see, but there is light they're using. It's a form of radiation. That's why sometimes you'll see people wear lead aprons and things so that you don't get too much, you know. And then you have gamma rays, which are the, the, the smallest and the most powerful. Okay, again, doesn't matter, Tim. Move on. But what I'm trying to say is that there is more to light than what you and I can see. So maybe when God said, let there be light, it wasn't just, oh, the sun and the stars, but maybe it was the energy. See, they believe that actually light and energy can actually potentially create matter. It's fascinating what we're discovering in science. And I just keep referring back to, wow, God said, let there be light. Now, scientists who don't care about the Bible who have been looking for results or some type of evidence of this Big Bang. For years, they were looking for evidence of this explosion. Why? Because if there's an explosion on Earth, something blows up, we see evidence of it. There's, you can, any place there's explosion, there's evidence of it. And you say, if you have all of the power of this universe contained, and then it just erupts, do you realize the intensity, the heat, the radiation that would come from such a cosmic explosion? And so scientists said, if the Big Bang really happened and there was a beginning, here's what scientists said. This was in the 60s. They said that there would be some type of proof of it in the universe. But we don't see it. Then something fascinating happened in 1964. 1964, a couple astronomers, Wilson and Penzias, these were radio astronomers, were taking their big radio antennas, Bell, Tal- uh, Bell Labs radio, I think it was, and, and, and they're pointing their big radio antennas into the universe, and every place they pointed them, they would pick up this hum. And they would eliminate all the other sources. They're like, why can't we get rid of this hum? And at the same time, you have physicists who are sitting here trying to figure out about this, what they called cosmic background microwave radiation. There should be this cosmic, like, we can't see it, but if it was exploded, it was so hot, it's cooled down, it's taken a long time, but it's so hot. We should see something for it. And they discovered this in 1964. We can't see it, but it's there. Now, as our technology has gotten better, we've been able to actually take a picture of this cosmic microwave background radiation. In fact, one of the most recent pictures, just take it up, this is a picture of, a, of our universe taken from satellites that can take a picture of microwave. And here's what they've discovered. You see all this? There's no black empty space that you just see, but there is microwave radiation throughout the entire universe. Why does that matter? Well, maybe because when God said, let there be light, maybe something did happen. Something got created in our universe. Maybe the Big Bang really did happen. Now, this leads us to ask a few really important questions. These are important questions in the science field they've been asking. What caused the Big Bang? No longer do we have an infinite universe, but we have a finite universe. There was a beginning to it. What caused it? What set it off? There's a lot of people say, well, it just existed, and then it exploded. But that doesn't work anywhere in our universe. With physics, the laws, anything. Something had to cause it to change state. If something's in an eternal state, it will never change, okay? And so there's, what caused the Big Bang? And then another question that came out of this is that, how does the Big Bang explain a universe that sustains life? Because here's what you and I know. You've ever blown anything up? We used to take little fireworks, firecrackers when I was a kid, ones that you probably can't buy today, and we would put them inside of things little matchbox cars, and we would light them and get back and watch it just, you know, blow up. I don't know if you ever did things like that, right? But we never have an explosion, random, uninitiated explosion that turns out to make what? To make laws that govern our universe, and there's laws of motion and gravity and and time and space. There's no order that comes out of explosions, 
Random explosions don't create order. We know that about life. So how in the world do we have a big bang start and have a universe that can sustain life? Now, one of probably maybe the second most brilliant theoretical physicist, maybe next to Einstein in the 20th century, was a guy named Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking passed away a few years ago. He had ALS for 50 years of his life. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, way smarter than I am. But Stephen Hawking, uh, he wrote in a book called A Brief History of Time. I want you to hear what he wrote about this problem we have of a big bang creating a universe that just happens to work. Here's what he said. He said, if the rate of expansion one second after the big bang, so big bang, one second after, had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million. It's really hard to explain all that. I don't understand that. But if it had been smaller, he said it would have recollapsed before it reached its present size. On the other hand, if it had been greater by a part in a million, that's a small amount. He said this, the universe would have expanded too rapidly for stars and planets to form. So we have a problem. We have evidence, scientific evidence, that points to a singular eruption of our universe, but then we also have a universe that has order and has laws, regularity, rationality, and it, has, it can sustain life. This challenge, by the way, is called the anthropic principle. This is, this is something that people are wrestling with today. How do we have a universe that sustains life? So, faith and science converge now. I've shared some of the scientific evidence. You can go research it yourself. But here's what's interesting. Faith and science tend to come to very different conclusions. Same evidence, but different conclusions. So if you're someone who says, I don't believe in God, you're here. I'm glad you're here. Let me tell you what you have as possible solutions. There's no God. We know there's a finite universe. It's expanding It had a start. It's not infinite. So what do we have from this Big Bang? Okay, well, you have a couple things. Maybe you've heard this term. You ever heard of the multiverse? Multiverse? This is a theory that people like Stephen Hawking and other physicists have come up with. What if, here's the proposal, what if our universe is not the only universe? Possible. What if in other dimensions, okay, because we have dimensions, we have space operates in three dimensions, time, a fourth, some would say four-dimensional space and time, space-time continuum, that's Albert Einstein's special relativity, okay? So, so here's the thing, the multiverse, maybe there's a multiverse, which means what if there's billions and billions and billions of universes that all just exist and could randomly just start and explode? And if they start, because they all got to start, But maybe by probability and statistics, they're going to all have different laws. And it just so happens that we live in the one that has the perfect laws for sustaining life. Well, it's possible, but can I tell you something? There is no evidence of this. There's no way of proving this. So in order to believe this, you have to have faith. Okay. That's one. Here's another one. Oscillating. Maybe our universe is oscillating. It's expanding. It's like someone's blowing up a balloon. It's expanding. But at some point, it's going to contract. Black hole. Everything sucks back in. If you get a big enough one, expands. And then it sucks back into itself. By the way, if that happens, guess what happens to you and me? Vapor. Done. And so maybe, the, maybe there's an expansion and a contraction, and then it'll expand again, and then maybe after billions of years, maybe we'll be able to have life again. But again, can I just say this? That's possible. You can't prove that. There's no evidence of it. I don't care what people say. I mean, people are trying to come up with evidence. There's no evidence of this. Multiverse, oscillating. Here's another one, this very serious one that people are really talking about. Alien life. Serious. Richard Dawkins, okay, evolutionary biologist. We'll talk about him next week. This is what he does. Fred Hoyle, 
guy I talked about, the steady state universe, Fred Hoyle, big bang guy, big alien. This is, that if life emerged here, who's to say it didn't emerge someplace else in the universe? And maybe they deposited spores and things of life. They, okay, it's possible. There are so many other things. There's other ones, time travel. There's people talking about time travel. I just, that one just really doesn't work, Okay. All right, maybe there's people from the future that figured out the science and evidence to be able to travel in time. They went all the way back to the beginning, prehistoric, all this stuff, and they deposited life that had then evolved and then created them. Wait a minute, I don't think that works. Okay, so time travel, we're just going to go ahead and scratch that one. I don't even think that one's a possible theory, all right? So, so this is what we have. Now, that's if you're someone who doesn't believe in a God. Now, if you are someone who believes in a God... You would say, well, if God created all of this, an intelligent being that went to all the trouble to create all the galaxies and the stars and that there's life, at least as we know it here on this planet, why? That's a great question. What it leads us to really wonder is this. Purpose. What's the purpose But also, there is purpose. Whenever you do something intentionally, you do it on purpose. And if God did all this on purpose, then maybe there is a purpose. Some of you go, why does all this matter? That's a great question. Why does all this matter? I'm glad we went to school and had all this lesson. I I would say that I believe that it matters because how you view the universe and through what lens is actually how you end up viewing yourself in the universe. And it makes a difference. So how do we find purpose and meaning in this life? Can I tell you something? If this is your worldview, there is no such thing as meaning and purpose. I'm sorry, you can ascribe meaning and purpose to whatever you want, so you feel, but there is none. You're a cosmic accident, a lucky one. But if this is true, and you're not an accident, then there's purpose. In fact, I was wanted to show you something that my wife got me for our, our 25th anniversary. Yeah, I got her a big old new diamond rock, and she got me this picture. So... Yeah, I don't know how fair that is, but whatever. But I actually love this. I really do. This is a picture of the night sky, Columbus night sky. It says, the day we said I do, May 11th, 1996, the day we got married. And you see, you know, what's interesting is you can look up into the sky and you just look at a bunch of stars and you can determine that it's all just matter and random and it has no meaning or value. Or sometimes you, you look into the stars and, and you feel that there's deep meaning and value in them. It has to do with your perspective. It has to do with how you see it. And the reason why I wanted to show you this because um, something else kind of significant happened on that day. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was... Um, really a brilliant scientist that um, passed away in December of 1996. He was an atheist. He was someone that really struggled to believe that there was a God. And um, he actually, there was a book that came out after he, after he died with his sayings and writings called The Pale Blue Dot. And it was based on a picture. Maybe we can stick it up. It was a picture that was taken from Voyager in 1990, which is one of the satellites we launched decades before. And this is Voyager looking back. You see this little pale blue dot? You know what that is? That's Earth. This Voyager sent this picture back. And Carl Sagan would look at this picture and think, how can you believe in a God that we have so much of this universe, but just this, you're telling me that little pale blue dot is why God made all this? That's absurd. And Carl Sagan 
on the day I got married, May 11th, 1996. He gave a commencement speech, end up being some famous words of his that they encapsulated and put into a book. And I want to read it to you. I want to read to you some of his words. I just want you to maybe focus on that picture of the pale blue dot. Here's what Carl Sagan said. He said, from this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest, but for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love and getting married, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and in triumph, they could be the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of the dot on scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner of the dot how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It's up to us. That, that's the perspective if there is no God. This life is all we have. And he said something that I think echoes a lot of people who don't have the hope of a God and that is how will we save ourselves from ourselves? See, that's the perspective if there is no God. But if there is a God, can I tell you something? If there's an infinite eternal God who started, who created with purpose and design, who set forth the boundaries that are expanding now of the universe. Can I just tell you something? There is hope and there is meaning and there is purpose and there is a reason for you and for me to exist. And listen, we don't have to just save ourselves. God knew we couldn't. And so God did it himself by sending his son Jesus to that pale blue dot to rescue you and me. Why would you do that in the midst of the whole universe? Because you matter. Because you matter to God. Because he loves you. Because he created you on purpose and for a purpose. Would you bow your heads and just allow me to pray for you today? Father, in this moment, I'm grateful that in this vast, unmeasurable universe, that you cared so much about that pale blue dot. That you care about me. You care about every person right now that's in this moment. I pray that purpose, God, would begin to resonate in every person. God, I believe that you are the cause and the creator of our universe. 
I believe that science and evidence points us to you. That by faith, God, I, I believe that you created and sustain, and you did it for a purpose. And I pray for the person, God, that maybe is full of questions and doubts and is wondering, God, are you out there? I pray that, God, you would show them right now that you aren't out there. You are right here. I thank you, God, that you did not leave us in this universe to figure it out for ourselves, but that, God, you stepped into time and space so that we could find hope. God, thank you for creating us. Thank you, God. And I pray that we discover the purpose for which you created us. We pray these things according to the Savior who came to the pale blue dot to rescue us. And his name is Jesus. In his name, we all said together, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We want to connect with you and we want to be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.